Hello and welcome to Faith in Politics, the JPIT podcast. I'm Meg. And I'm Rodney. And you're listening to our May edition, which is made up of oh, the division bell is going. <laughs> That's what happens when you record in Parliament. Faith in Politics is the Joint Public Issues Team's podcast, a partnership between the Methodist Church, United Reformed Church and Baptist Union of Great Britain that also works closely with the Church of Scotland. So, Rodney, we are at the end of May. Um, It's been quite a big month, hasn't it? What's happened so far this month um, in the political world that has been significant? We recently had the Queen's speech, which was quite exciting to listen to and hear about the government's agenda. And what's your thoughts on the Queen's speech? things that you thought stuck out good question um i think one of the big headlines for me has been um the introduction of voter id people might know the government is planning on introducing um mandatory photo um voter id at elections which is something that has been very widely um commented on and um criticized and it'll be very interesting to see going forward what happens with this it's been it's already faced a lot of opposition and it's not even really got started yet so I'll be very interested to see if it gets if it gets carried through. What about you? Is there anything that's particularly stuck out for you? No, but um, in regards to the um, voter ID, I think it's quite interesting that I checked that there's not actually been much or any voter fraud in the UK. The figures are so low, so it kind of asks why is it being enacted? Well, exactly. There was in 2019 there were 59 million votes cast and one prosecution for voter fraud and since 2010 there's been four prosecutions and the government is spending millions of pounds on yeah it is bizarre because it really does seem to be a crime that is very irregular um so it's really quite confusing that it's become a priority of this government considering it's really not an issue to be honest um but it will we'll see going forward i'm hoping it doesn't go through but but we'll see um this week has also been Pentecost. It was Pentecost on Sunday, which is very exciting. Um, and also, Parliament goes into recess um, tomorrow at recording, but will be in recess when this goes out. And that is very exciting. I'm going to Scotland for a little holiday. Rodney, where are you going? I'll go to Cornwall um, for camping. Are you excited? Um, very excited. It's going to be an amazing trip. First time camping. Wow. It's the first time camping ever? My first time camping ever. Wow. We'll have to get next month, we'll have to get an update on Rodney's thoughts on camping, whether you rate camping or not. No, I don't. I can tell you that. (laughs) Maybe you'll be converted. You never know. Brilliant. Well, in today's episode, we have um, an interview Rodney did with the brilliant Fleur Anderson MP. Where's Fleur the MP for, Rodney? Putney. Brilliant. Um, and she was the only Labour gain in the 2019 election um, and also has a fascinating history professionally. She actually worked for the Methodist Church a few years ago um, and has worked very widely for a number of different um, charities and international development um, and campaigning. Did you, what was the highlight of speaking to her, Rodney? I'll say the highlight of speaking to Fleur was understanding her, her adaption and her feelings initially when she was elected off the back of obviously a disappointing result in the election for Labour and 
also how she, her experience, her journey really was quite interesting because she's worked with a lot of Christian charities and organisations and that transition was equally important and how she spoke about the need for the voice of the church in issues and how we should yeah. be. So there were a lot of things that stuck out and plus she's a lovely person to speak to as well. Brilliant. Um, so after that, Rodney and I are going to reflect a little um, on on the really interesting ideas Fur brings up of what it means to live radically as Christians engaging with politics and the example we see for that in the early church before the podcast is finished up by a prayer by the brilliant Lucy, also of JPIT, um, which is part of our work on Reset the Debt, which is a campaign that you will hear more about in the podcast as it develops, but is definitely worth going and checking out on our website. And it's one of our biggest pieces of work over the last few months. So, yeah, without any further ado, let's jump into the interview. Off you go, Rodney, of a few weeks ago. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Labour MP Fleur Anderson. Fleur is the MP for Putney. It's a privilege to have you, Fleur. Hi, Rodney. I'm delighted to be here. For many that won't know you're quite a new MP and um, you were elected in our last election and I had the privilege this morning of researching you and looking you up more and I heard you just say with such humility winning Putney is going to be so hard you were the one that gained the first seat for Labour on election night how was that moment for you? You're right so Putney had been a Conservative seat for uh, quite a few years before um, so the ele- it were not- there, nothing was sure at all about the election. I just spent, um, I'm a local councillor, so I've been um, very active in the community for, for many years, but I spent the year before the election just going around and talking to lots and lots of people, which is such a privilege. It's amazing to go and just hear about so many different issues, um, people's concerns, what they love about our fantastic constituency as well. Um, but very hard work. Um, so when it come to the, came to the night, I was taking nothing for granted at all. We just, we worked as a team. We were a massive team in Putney. It was brilliant to be part of a really, really positive election. And we could see that more and more people were saying, yes, uh, Labour is the one for us. So uh, when it came to the count and we could see that I'd won, it was um, oh, such an honour, such a relief. So, uh, so exciting. Um, and then to look up and find out the rest of the country had gone in a totally different direction. Um, was it wasn't such a good moment to be honest so it was really bittersweet that we'd won we'd won in Putney and we felt great as a as a team and I was so honoured that so many people had put their cross by my name um but across the country we hadn't won um um by and the Conservatives have such a big majority as well so I knew that I'd be joining as opposition also I got to know lots of the other candidates for the other Labour seats across the country and we're in a very active WhatsApp group we were helping each other and I always thought that when I got elected we would all walk in together and to be the only Labour gain um, there were other Labour MPs elected because other Labour MPs had stood down so there's a group of us um, but that is not what I expected as well as well that made it a bit more bittersweet too but it's been a whirlwind year and a half yeah, I I definitely echo those sentiments. I imagine for you, it was your first time standing, am I right? Yep. Yeah. So when it's your first time standing, you're also learning to be an MP, but now you're learning to be an MP in a pandemic. Was that a difficult experience and how was it? 
yeah, I'm sure I'll look back on this and think, how on earth did I do that? And how yeah. did we all do it? It's like it's like everyone. We all had to adapt to whatever we were doing before and work out how to do it in a new way. And so I was no different to so many people having to do that, really. Uh, but yes, but you're right. Uh, I, I, I've come from just being a local councillor, local mum, working in my local community. I was running a local community centre. So not the world of politics. I wasn't in Westminster before. Um, some others have worked for MPs or in different ways. So I've had to learn a lot about um, what goes on in Westminster, how I can be the best representative. Um, and they also set up my new team of staff who then some of us, have, we've never met each other in person or once in between lockdowns. So they've been amazing to be able to, to work and to learn how to be part of my team as well within that time. So for all of us uh, learning together. And now we'll be going back soon. And um, I just try to get as much parliamentary experience and just push myself to talk as much as possible in the House of Commons. And I've been able to keep doing that. But you haven't had been able to have those like um, informal chats with MPs, getting to know each other. I think that's what I've missed the most and what I'm looking forward to getting back to. Because I think you just get lots of tips of advice from having a cup of tea with another MP, or just being in Westminster, picking things up. And that's what I've missed the most. So you're a Christian MP and you're now within the political arena. So you're best to tell us. I think for many, we have questions about how politicians and politics see faith groups and do politicians see the increasing role of faith groups in terms of making change happen? Well I can speak from my own experience of being in a faith group trying to lobby my MP to make a difference. Um, I, in the 90s I worked for MAYC, the Methodist Youth Action, and so we were a group of all the young people across uh, the country trying to lobby our MPs and to lobby government and also we were campaigning on issues like um, um, the Burma liberation. So we were lobbying petrol stations. We were trying to make a difference and make a change as a faith community. And I could see that our influence was we could go so far. Um, it's like any group, but being organised and having um, a clear set of values and point of view is, is very impressive to MPs. It, do, it does make a difference to say, I represent a lot of people in your constituency altogether. And um, you're able to communicate with me by coming and speaking um, at church on Sundays uh, in a way that you, it, it's, it might be harder to speak to other constituents. So there's, there's something about the faith community which has got a lot to say to politicians and I think is very influential. But I think there is a, not for me, but I think there is a declining influence of, um, of faith communities because there are fewer people going to church. And so being able to be those people who get together on a Sunday and say, this is important to us, let's go to our MP. So because of that, I think that we need to keep finding ways to have an influence and, and ways to, to have our say and ways in which we check our values against the values that politicians have and hold them up to that as well. You mentioned that you were the head of World Action for the Methodist Youth Organisation. Methodist Church has a proud history of engagement with social justice issues. Is there any particular issues that you feel Christians and its members could be engaging in more? Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up, Rodney. I'm really glad you've talked about that because working for the Methodist Church really was um, very formative for me. And also seeing, the, as you say, that history that's also in the Baptist Church and other churches, that history of being radical Christians. Uh, and I think that's really important to, to my faith as well. I mean, Jesus was a massively radical person. He didn't just take things by halves at all. He gave everything up, traveled, you know, spoke out. He didn't mess about. Um, and 
uh, and the first faith community um, in Acts, when they were set up, they, um, they also just gave up everything. They said, right, let's drop everything. Let's meet together. Let's just do things. And let's think of a way we can be society totally differently. And that is exciting to me. I haven't done that. I mean, I, I live in a, in a house with my family. I've, you know, all of those things. I'm not as radical as I really would like to be, but I think there's something about that essence of radical life and being a Christian that we have. And um, so, so there's, a, there's a lot we can do as Christians. And I think sometimes Christians feel that we can't meddle in, in politics, that it's not the place. But I actually think it's absolutely the opposite. We should really be finding out what's going on. We should be finding out what's going on on our local councils. What, what are our councillors doing? It's really even harder to find out sometimes what your local council is doing than parliament because parliament gets reported in the press. But what's going on for other people in your community, for people who are really missing out on maybe on local services, um, for people with housing issues, with um, special educational needs in schools, with youth employment. These are issues we don't talk about that much in church, but they're really important for our communities and therefore they should be important for us. So I think finding out what's going on um, at, as Christians together. And I love it sometimes when we have a prayer meeting or we get together in, in church and we, and we look at some issues like this. And we find out what's going on in another country for another community. We have a speaker from another country. You don't get that opportunity really in most other parts of life, but in, our, in church, we can hear from different situations. And then we have a responsibility to act. To act. We can't just like, find out about those things and not do anything. So I think that also element of being able to come together, to write to your MP, to to write to find to meet with your local councillors together as a group is really powerful um, and we should use that as much as we can looking at your career before politics you have such an extensive history of working with christian charities only you've worked with cafford christian aid and as a trustee of the jubilee debt campaign so you've done a lot yeah it looks like i just kind of ticked off different denominations as i went round. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's amazing that's what i'm sure a lot of people would love to do um, within that, us as Jay Pitt have been really key looking at a project and campaign called Reset the Debt off the back of COVID. And it really does deal with the issue of debt. We know that as a result of COVID, many people will be struggling and have so much debt, that household debt that they're carrying on from here. And it's a burden when after with COVID, we're looking at a post-COVID recovery, we're looking at facing the future differently for them to be carrying that burden, what do you think could be done in relation to debt? Really glad you're focusing on that. I think that is a really, really important issue. There are so many people who've just struggled through this year and they'll have debt to all sorts of different places. It will be family and friends have just helped each other out. It will be um, debt on credit cards and in different ways and also housing. And um, we are all so just like two paychecks away from losing our homes and that threat of eviction is really high and the stress of having that is enormous so being able to get out of that also sadly I've been looking into funeral poverty as well um, and the effect that having to pay for a funeral and there have been so many deaths because of Covid and other reasons and so that has had a really big impact on putting families into further debt so having that suddenly have to pay for funeral costs and even look, been looking into the social funeral fund it it can you can get a thousand pounds although it's about ten thousand people have applied for it and not got that 
Um, but that doesn't cover anything like the, the cost of the funeral. And then I've been hearing about families where really, really traumatically, they've had two deaths. So you've had to have two lots of funeral bills, plus that person who's not earning. I mean, these are dreadful situations. So I'm really glad you're having that campaign. Um, what can we do about it? Well, well, one is having enough income for, for a start. So youth, so employment, having employment opportunities on a national level is, is going to be absolutely vital. And the government and local councils and local um, uh, further and higher education um, colleges, and I've been working with my local further education college on this as well, just thinking differently and much more about how we can increase the opportunities to to skill up, upskill, and get into employment. So getting a getting an income is obviously really key, um, but also making sure that universal credit covers as well. So not having a reduction in universal credit it will make a huge difference to hundreds of thousands of families. Uh, we have found out the twenty percent uplift has been extended, but it needs to be extended further. It's absolutely essential. So the income side is really really important, and as as businesses now come off furlough, looking at those businesses that have struggled on up to now, but they're just on the edge, and I've spoken to quite a lot of these locally, a bit more government support just now will make all the difference to them surviving and then being employers. And that's going to be very important. So the government have put in a lot of support up to now, but they could make sure they maximise on that support by just helping certain key businesses, many of them have fallen through the cracks. Um, and just missed out for one reason or another. So discretionary local fund for businesses is really important to keep enough businesses employing people. And then the other side, debt advice, what to do about that mounting burden of debt. Well, my local church has actually set up a debt advice service, which is what a great thing for a church to do. So I would, um, and I know lots of other churches have done that. And I know Church Action Against Poverty have done a lot of that as well. And that is a really, really fantastic thing for for a local church to be doing and for a local community to sort of come together and go uh, we know this is tough for many people we're just going to you know make this a priority and do something about it that's another way um, that, that churches can take action too and what will you be you be doing in the campaign um we're actually calling for the debt to actually be removed we understand that this situation is an urgent problem that demands a real and clear solution and we've got a jubilee kind of idea and project which creates a jubilee fund um, in which people are provided grants that would help them pay off and cancel off unavoidable debt and give them a chance and opportunity and that platform to face the future after COVID with much hope and anticipation and we're really looking for MPs to come aboard and take on our idea and we're definitely encouraging people to write to their MPs about resetting the debt because we believe it's something that is desperately in need because many stories we heard during COVID about people wanting to pay for this and that, but they couldn't because of the debt that they have incurred and in it limits them. And we don't want, as a Christian organisation, people to be limited in how they live their life. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen locally the amount of people that have needed to use a food bank has gone up. So they're, they're exact, those are exactly the kind of families who are just at, at their wits end, um, maybe often working, even working two or three jobs and yet still haven't got enough at the end of the month to cover their bills. Um, and so support for them. And obviously they're, they're the families that often don't write to their MPs. 
Yes. They don't think they're MPs for them. They don't. They haven't seen the political system working for them. They've given up on it. And whenever they write to an authority, they get back uh, something which is impersonal, difficult to deal with, just more barriers. Um, everyone who writes to me, I really try to, to overcome that and just to make kindness a real priority and, and be a different kind of public face. Um, but you writing in and other people writing in about the debt situation is doubly important because of that. Yeah. Looking at a lot of campaign work you've done, what would you say you're most proud of? Oh, um, oh. well, you know, there's been some big campaigns, the Jubilee Debt Campaign, uh, when we achieved that massive millions of pounds of write-off of debt. That was absolutely fantastic. And it was amazing to be, I organised like church communities to come and campaign in Genoa when we had massive protests against the G7 to so get like literally churches from a, a community, a coach from a, a church somewhere in England. Many coaches all came down to Genoa. And in Genoa, there were these like massive hard line protests at the same time at all. But we were there as Christians standing up for um, debt cancellation around the world. So when that happened, I was really proud, but even prouder when I went to countries and I saw the teachers' houses being built as a result of the debt cancellation, you could actually see it. So they actually, they, they said that this was, um, they were called the HIPIC houses, which were part of the debt cancellation program. But there were teachers living in rural areas, teaching children who hadn't had education before because of it. So when you can see the human face, that's, uh, oh, that's made me very proud. Uh, locally campaigning to save my local youth centre recently made me really proud as well. Youth services are massively important to me and um, at, at threat. And then many of the people who I've just got, I've just got new houses for, I've been able to start to, to represent them and they've got what they need. And when they felt that there was no hope, those individual cases, so those people um, make me very, very proud as well. And and very recently, I've been part of the school uniform bill. So it was a private member's bill by another Labour MP, Mike Amesbury, and he put this forward. And it's going to reduce the cost of school uniforms across the country when it finally gets enacted. Um, and the ability for schools to say we don't have so much branded um, uniforms and, and costs got to be a big factor. But I know that's going to make a big difference to lots of struggling families across the country. So that made me very proud to be part of it as well. Yeah, there are many others. I've been campaigning for so long. <laughs> I actually wonder how different it is or how much of a contrast or similarity is being on the other side of the table now. Um, you're an MP, a long time campaigner, now transitions to becoming a member of parliament. How different is that other side of it? Yeah, I do think that quite a lot, actually. I think, oh, if I was, if I was that that organisation or that person writing in, I wouldn't have done it quite like that. I think they could have done it differently. Now I know that because I am that MP being being lobbied. Um, I also know when I worked in Bosnia for Christian Aid, the impact of having someone internationally talking about you and talking about your situation, um, they probably wouldn't have known the impact that they had to us in a village in Bosnia and to the refugees that I was working with. But it was a really enormous impact. So that um, has really helped me to see the, the value and the, and the reasons why I do quite a lot of what I do. Um, 
so I think, yeah, writing in and writing in at the right time um, and writing in with that sort of clear demands of what you want and, uh, and just understanding the parliamentary calendar and where you can have an influence. Um, all of those are really important to actually being more influential about trying to lobby your MP. But also I know that I absolutely value uh, anyone who writes in locally about an issue that several local people are involved with, or even one, I've taken up big campaigns from one person. Um, that's, that, there's nothing as important as that as well. That's amazing. I feel like it's good to be involved in those campaigns and have that experience because you can relate to them in a way maybe others can't that's had that previous experience. And you've done quite a lot of work in terms of, and you're quite passionate about international development. I believe you've been to Kenya, right? Lived yeah, I lived in Kenya for four years with my family. Yeah. Yes, amazing. And what was that experience like? You speak about being in Kenya, you speak about um, being in Bosnia, and a lot of community development and international development, you're quite global in your thinking. And you would know about the government's plan in terms of their international aid budget and commitment to bring it to 0.5, 0.7. What message does that send, do you believe, to the world and our responsibility? Yeah, you're right. It's absolutely shocking what is happening. I mentioned this in my maiden speech because we, we could see it coming um, with the Conservative majority. And I've been there campaigning for many years alongside, as I, as I say, alongside a lot of communities across the UK. Um, I've seen the impact that aid has on real lives around the world and so proud that we're a country that will be funding that. We are a country that will be funding health clinics, clean water, but also going further and funding um, changes to programmes across whole countries. And that is what the UK should be doing. Um, and that's what uh, lots of, that's what we want to be doing. When we meet in church and we say we want to support, um, there's so many churches supporting communities all around the world saying that's the right thing to do. When we see a need, we just want to reach out and help that person. Uh, so the actual cuts are from 15 billion to 9 billion. It's a it's a massive decrease and it means lots of projects already being um, taken away on the ground. For example, in Sudan, a whole peace build, building project built up over many years. And peace is the thing that will make the most difference um, in many countries um, is being cut. And so this is it's really short term. I don't think it's what the British people want at all. Um, out of all these huge amounts being spent on everything else this year, I think we should make sure that aid is a priority. But even more as well, we've seen how internationally we're connected because of COVID. We've seen that you need to have good health everywhere. We've seen that, um, yeah, that the impact of what happens in one country massively affects us here. So more than ever, surely, we should want everyone around the world to be, to be raising their opportunities and be able to have the best out of life that we want to have here. So I'll be opposing those aid cuts all the way, um, as I'm sure many of your listeners will be as well. And that's really important. But what, whatever you do to write, anyone does to write in and, and um, say what they can about this issue is important. Yeah. I think it's, it's very important in terms of our responsibility to the world and the idea of global bliss, Britain. How do you see that? What is your perception and idea of what Global Britain is? I'm sure it's quite extensive. Could you give us a little insight? Yeah, that is a big question, Rodney. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Uh, but it's a really pertinent one for now because we've just had this big review about saying what is what is global Britain? What do we want to be as a country? What are our really important values that we would take to our to how we communicate with um, countries around the world? How much do we want to be interconnected? And how much do we want to say no? We'll batten down the hatches. We'll just be our country and be as good as we can here, but really that we'll we'll try not to have very much um, to do with other countries. And and so yeah, I. I'm very sad about Brexit. I think that it was a, the whole of the EU was a, an amazing peace project above above so many other things. Um, obviously, trade and, and being able to travel and employment rights were really important, but it brought peace to our continent. So these are really, those are, that's really important to me. Peace is very important. Of having lived in Bosnia and seeing the impact of not having peace, and that's really close to home. Um, uh, I can see that you need to build, actively build peace all the time. It's something I worked on with the Methodist Church. We have it in so many of our church services. We share the peace. Um, Jesus talked about peace so much and it is vitally important. So our role, to, uh, role in peacekeeping around the world, I think, is very, very important. The conflict at the moment in Tigray, we should be stepping up and doing all we can, not just warm words, not just saying it's dreadful, and, and not after the fact, we're going to be saying we should have done more. We should be doing more right now. We should be an active peace building um, country. So that's that's one thing. Um, and also enabling as much in, interrelatedness between our between countries around the world. So things like the Erasmus student scheme, enabling young people to travel, see the world, expand our horizons, find out what's out there. We are part of an interconnected world and we should enable young um and as much uh, travel and exchange as possible. Uh, the, those are some of the things, but also um, refugees is a big, big issue for me as well. How we treat um, people who come to our shores, fleeing here for refuge, says something vitally important about who we are as a country, and we should enable this, our country to be a, that place of refuge where people can start their lives again, a welcoming community, um, and, and then return or not return, however they choose that that should be our ideal um we don't we don't have that yet although there are many communities church communities and others who have been amazing in welcoming refugees that should be across our policy as well it should be how we are as a country and we all it's something we should all be very proud of as well Fab, that's really great to um, to listen to. And Rodney, it sounds like you had a really nice time speaking to her. It's fascinating hearing someone that's been on both sides of these conversations, isn't it? And that really knows, yeah, knows both dynamics so intimately. It's really exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think you could definitely feel that when Fleur said that um, how she saw it and she would be like, oh, no, maybe you shouldn't ask that. We should, I would have phrased it differently. So that dynamic of, being on the other side and that experience helps and also causes her to be reflective. So I think that was very good to listen to and hear and understand. Definitely. Something I think really stuck out to me listening to the interview was this idea Fleur brought up of what does it mean as Christians to live radically and what can we learn in, you know, 21st century England, where we are, London, the city Rodney and I are in, from the early church particularly about living radically. And that was something Rodney and I were talking about, you know, can we be, in inverted commas, radicals and 
living and working and being members of mainstream political parties are those two things inherently um kind of opposite yeah i think it's an important question to ask i don't know um i think it would be best to like think about the word and what we're speaking about in terms of living radically for me when i think about living radically there's an element of self-sacrifice that's inherent within it so it's it's such a level of commitment that we're speaking about but that as Christians we're called to have and I'm not too sure about the um, political alignment and living radically if we can do that but then there tends to be a, a belief and school of thought that when you're living radically you're just in the middle you're not Labour you're not Conservative you're not Democrat you're not Republican you're just Meg you're just Rodney and you're just you almost exist in like this kind of different realm don't yeah, you that's not yeah. so it's like you're prepared to speak truth to a Labour government you're prepared to speak truth to a Conservative government and I wonder if you're doing that can you do still do that can you still speak honestly to them it's a question that would be key to understand and know I'm not sure. It begs the question whether um, one's driven more by faith or by politics. I think the point that Fleur makes that almost answers this question is that as Christians, our model of what it means to live radically isn't like a radical, you know, Marxist on one political side or a radical neoconservative, but instead is this model of what it means to be followers of Jesus and to be church that we see in Acts. Yeah, I think the point Fleur makes that our model for what it means to live radically is the early church poses the question, what can we learn about living radically when we look at Acts? And for me, the key or one of the key themes, especially ironically now at Pentecost, that we see repeatedly in Acts when we look at the radical community that the early church was, was that they came together. They kept coming together. And when we look at the word radical, interestingly, from my research, it comes from a Latin word meaning root. And it means to proceed from or to um, relate to a root. So it's literally about being rooted into something. Um, so I think for us as Christians, it's that challenge that to live radically, we need to be rooted in a community that comes together. So we see in Acts, it's in um, Acts 2 verse 1, that when the Holy Spirit first met with the early church, they were all together in one place. The, the time that God blessed them with his presence and his power that enabled them to you know, live in a way that was following him was when they all joined together. And that was the foundation from which their lives led, their pursuit of justice and their pursuit of peace came from. So to us, in a world that is increasingly divided, and I mean, in the world of COVID, physically we've not been able to meet together, it actually is radical to be all together in one place, to meet together, to come together, to bake bread together and to pray together um, and to live in fellowship. And that is a real way to live radically. Um, and, it, you know, it says later on in Acts that they lived a life of following the apostles' teaching, a fellowship, of baking bread and of prayer. And they had everything in common and were all together praising God. And that often sounds, I think, to us like quite kitsch and quite like, oh, cute little like community that lived together and ate bread, like beautiful. Um, and Fleur herself said, you know, most of us as Christians have to admit 
that we don't live a radical life. You know, we've not sold all our belongings and given them all away to the poor. We don't live in a commune. You know, we're not radical in that sense. But I think she made a really interesting point that was for many people in society. How often do we come together in groups to hear about injustice, to hear about the suffering of others, to hear about the pain of other people? Not often, unless you're particularly engaged in like a pressure group or a lobby group or, you know, an environmental campaign. It's not often that you will come together to hear about the lives of people that are completely unrelated to you in day to day life who might be on the other side of the world. Um, but in church, in interceding for others, in hearing about the stories of you know, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, we can come together in a way that transcends being in the same room, but is, you know, being of one mind as, I don't know where it says on the Bible, says it somewhere, you know, being all together in suffering, even when we can't physically, as with COVID, be all together. Um, and later on, I think Fleur beautifully talks about needing to actively seek out and participate in peace, that it's not something that happens once and you achieve, but it's something that you are constantly living in. And later on in Acts, it's same um, chapter, but 2 verse 46, it says every day they continue to meet together. So the early church didn't come together once, encounter the Holy Spirit and then go from that place and never continue to meet together. They kept meeting together. And it was from there that they could have a community that, you know, it says later on, had the favour of all people. Um, so I think, yeah, that is a challenge that living radically actually means living a life rooted in community together. I, I definitely agree, but just to play devil's advocate here, yeah. Let's let's take living radically to be what it is, being in community together. Would you suppose that it's possible that an element of living radically is going out and living on the streets with the homeless? Because looking back to the early church, which was an example given as we had our first episode with Shane, right? Yeah. Yeah, they gave up everything they had, the early church. Yeah. That's radical. That's radical. That is radical. So where does radical stop? Or, just play devil's advocate, is living a regular life being unfaithful? Ooh. I think it's not a binary. Like, I think, I think, and that's almost what Fleur was touching on, that we can live a radical life without literally selling everything we have. In, well, ooh, have I just contradicted myself? Um, I think the invitation is not so much to, to like, I don't know how to word this correctly. It's not that we should go and be homeless to the homeless people. It's that we should take what we have and share. You know, it's, it's not... Um, yeah, it's it's holding what we own far more loosely, both in terms of financially, our homes, our belongings, our wages, but also in terms of like our our position in society and our privileges um, and the way we interact with other people. And that awareness that things aren't our own, you know, I think that's often easier when you have less maybe because it seems less to hold on to, if that makes sense. And that is an interesting question, is living whatever the opposite of radically, you know, a betrayal of God. Mm. Luckily, you know, we follow a God that is merciful and that forgives us each day, who has new mercies. Um, But ultimately, if following Jesus means living radically, 
then that is what we should be trying to do each day. Um, I agree. I agree. I think um, you can live radically, but not necessarily do all of that. Because when you think about something ra- radical, it's like, oh, this is exciting and unusual. But it can be it can be boring, but still living radically. We can still be working to give life to the poor, um, doing honest work with our own hands and working with people to ensure that they get the best of what they need to get. And I think when it comes down to living radically, it's about how we engage with issues. Are we going to see those that are vulnerable and less fortunate and just be like, well, it's not me affected, so I'm not doing anything. It's that element of welcoming a stranger, which is that um, idea behind immigration and refugees. It's that idea of looking at those that are less fortunate that don't have and um, looking at those that have depths on their head. And I think Flo spoke about her experience with those that have debt. And we're actually engaging in a project, Reset the Debt, which really can be seen as a radical campaign. Yeah, and I think the thing um, that sticks out to me is that, you know, the theme of justice is so clear in, in God's love and in the Bible, you know, but it's not the concept of justice that we in society can often have it's not like you did this therefore you must take this punishment because you know we know as christians that jesus took the ultimate price for us but instead um is a justice that's rooted in forgiveness and in freedom and in taking away burdens from people like you said reset the debt is is taking away these weights that are preventing people from living flourishing lives um and it touches on something else fleur said she spoke about how she tries in every single um, interaction with her constituents to be a vo- you know to be kind which sounds like such a basic thing um and it is in a lot of ways but sadly is not the experience a lot of people have of elected officials of bureaucracy of politicians and just in their lives and actually um that is radical seeing each and every person that emails in as a human deserving of dignity and of respect and of love not just a number in a system or a problem to be solved is a radical approach to our society. And it is that challenge, I think, to look at each and every situation and decide how can we choose to love primarily. And that is radical because mm-hmm. that's not what our, what our society tells us to do. God, thank you for the abundance and generosity of your creation. God of plenty, hear us. Thank you for all that makes us feel safe and secure, having a place to call home, enough income to meet our needs, the love and support of friends, family and wider networks. God of kindness, hear us. We remember today the plight of those known to us and those around the world who struggle for survival today. God of compassion, hear us. We pray for those who are trapped by debt, fear and uncertainty. God of rescue, hear us. We pray today that government, communities and families will come together to support those in need. God of unity, hear us. Turn the ears and the hearts of the powerful to the needs of the powerless. God of justice, hear us. We recommit ourselves to supporting and speaking up for the voiceless and the vulnerable. 
God of action, hear us. And if a country's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members, may our country be truly great. We pray these things in resonance with Jesus, who prays for us. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at FIP underscore podcast. And on Instagram at Faith in Politics Podcast. Make sure to join us next month. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.